If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Well, good afternoon, Hamilton. On this absolutely spectacular August, uh, August, October. It feels like August. That's it what does threw me feel off. like August. October afternoon. It is absolutely sensational out there. If you can get out of the office and go for a walk or just get out to enjoy, it is, it is, this is not October in Canada. And I'm all for this. If this, if this is what climate change is, bring on more climate change. <laughs> Scott, that's going to get taken out of context so fast. Idle, you know it. <laughs> idle those cars if this is what it brings. <laughs> I am uh, just, no, this is great. This is fantastic out there. Anyway, welcome to the show. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. All letters can be sent to Scott Thompson about climate change. Um, welcome to the show. As I say, we are thrilled that you are along on this beautiful day as you wrap up your week, it is, uh, it, yeah, we're in the home stretch here. Let me tell you what's coming up on the show today. We'll be talking about the Ticats and a football game, their last game of the regular season. What are we expecting? Do we even care? I mean, they care. It's a game, I get, but is this not just a game? Is this not one of those games that you really just play to make sure nobody gets hurt? It's almost flag football for both teams or, or because you're going to be playing the same team in the first game of the playoffs is the point of this game absolutely demolish them physically so that everyone's walking with a limp. Which one is it? You, is it just stay healthy or is it do what you have to do to gain an advantage for the playoffs? We'll get into that one. Uh, we'll talk, be talking about Hamilton building numbers, my, uh, building milestones, numbers way, 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 way up. Uh, HSR no longer giving free rides for disabled riders, but is there a bigger story behind this? Is this an, in anticipation of having to pay H we had yesterday talking about HSR and a possible strike. Is this in anticipation of higher numbers, knowing we're going to need more money to pay for this. So we're getting rid of some of the, the free stuff that's out there. I will be talking about carbon taxes. Speaking of money, um, we are going to be getting into the idea that oh, there's a lot of stories about money today. Actually, it seems there are a lot of Canadians who are now saying, I can't afford a car. We, we've been talking about housing forever, forever. And we understand the difficulty of the housing situation, but now people are saying, uh, a car. Even if I wanted to live in my car, I can't afford a car. How can I afford a car? It's a very valid point. We'll talk about that one. Uh, there's a new poll out that shows that an awful lot of people, which I, f I just find this outrageous, outrageous. An awful lot of people are opting out of Halloween. Halloween is no longer a thing. We'll find out why that is. And there is a report. There was a leak yesterday of the, what we believe are the names that have been trademarked that will be released for the professional women's hockey league, for the original six teams in the professional women's hockey league. Somebody has gone in and gone to the trademark website and done some digging and found what this reporter believes are the names that will be, that these players will be playing under when that league starts. And let's just say there is not worldwide agreement that these are the best names ever given for some hockey teams. Uh, there's, 
there's, there, there might've been some heavy drinking when these names were chosen. People were sitting around there. There's some goofy names here. We'll, we'll let you decide how goofy you think they're made. Look, maybe you will, when you hear them later in the show, maybe you'll say these, those are great names. I love those names. Well, the question is who was the, doing the drinking, the people, the people or the chat GPT that probably picked Well, them. and that's, you know, some people have said, oh, this must've been created by AI because no it humans. Seems like it. Well, we're going to keep the name secret for now, but yes, it's, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of people who have a lot of thoughts about these names. We will get into that later in the show. And maybe if we get time today, Tom and I will get a chance to talk about the Florida man games. Yes. Have you heard about the Florida man games? I have not, but this is the perfect topic because tomorrow I'm actually flying out to Florida. Well, unrelated there you go. to the Florida Well, games. if you're lucky, so I don't know when these are, uh, they are, pl- oh, they're planned for February. So you're not going to be able to see them right now, but. No. Uh, the organizer has decided that, you know, there's enough stories involving a Florida man that all touch on a similar theme of general insanity and f- very repetitive stuff that happens in this. So, uh, these games will celebrate the beer loving, gator hunting, mullet wearing, stereotypical Florida man. So they will have, they're calling it by the way, the most insane athletic showdown on earth. So they are taking this tongue in cheek. This is not entirely serious. There will be, according to organizers, the evading arrest obstacle course, (laughs) which in which contestants jump over fences, run through yards while being chased by real police officers. (laughs) There's going to be the category five cash grab in which participants try to grab as much money in a wind-blowing booth for their hurricane history. And there is going to be beer belly wrestling, which I don't know how that plays out. Is that just regular wrestling with guys with beer bellies or like, are your hands behind your back and you can only like sumo the person with your beer? I don't. That's, I'm assuming just picturing in my mind, it's sumo wrestling. Basically it's gotta be. You would think that that's going to be... Well, I don't know. We're, we're going to find out, but I think this has some potential. I think this has the potential to be, you know, remember from, uh, remember from the movie, um, dodgeball when they had, uh, ESPN eight, the Ocho, this I think is made for the Ocho. This is going to be the Florida man games with the evading arrest obstacle course is going to be a, a world-class television event. I am quite sure that people will tune in for this one. Jen, I, I Jen would watch that. You, I know you would. I amazing. knew you would. <laughs> yeah. I, I would actually, I mean. Bet money on it. Well, no, I was going to say, I'd like to try it, but I, oh, I, I also yeah. don't want to be like lumped in too. I don't want to have to grow a mullet, which for me, it would be a skullet. Uh, it would be, it would, it would be <laughs> the Hulk a, Hogan. Is that a requirement for this? I think so. Yes. And for the Florida man games. Yeah. I would, I would look like Hulk Hogan only without the muscles. Yes. <laughs> you've got to have a mullet and it has to be as gator greasy as possible. There you oh, go. Yeah. There you go. Playoffs are coming up. The Grey Cup is here in Hamilton, but there is still a regular season game to go. Doesn't really mean anything. They can't move up. They can't move down. They know what their playoff fate is going to be. So what does this game mean? Well, Rick Zamperin, he is not just the host of Good Morning Hamilton, just finished his shift, oh, I don't know, a few hours ago, but stuck around. And he's not just the host of the fifth quarter after the games where he can talk about all this stuff, but he is uh, generally Mr. Football around here. Joins me now. Sir, how are you? Hey, I'm fantastic. How are you? 
I am well, but I am kind of trying to figure out if I'm the Hamilton Tiger Cats, what do I do with this game? Am I playing this like touch football in hopes that nobody gets hurt? Or am I playing the biggest game of smash mouth football ever? Because your opponent this week is the same as in the first playoff game the week after, and I want to soften them up as much as I can. Well, I I think uh, the head coach of the Montreal Alouettes, Jason Moss, said it uh, best earlier this week. He was basically asked, would you rather win this week or have a healthy team for the East semifinal? And he said, no doubt about it. And I'm paraphrasing, you know, a healthy team for the semifinal would be the much preferred option. So, you know, you can slice this meeting on Saturday afternoon in a couple of ways. No, I don't think either team is going to lay it on the line and say, we need this win. We absolutely have to have this victory because they don't absolutely have to have it. There's no moving up or down. Hamilton knows it's going to be in Montreal November 4th for the East semifinal. Both teams want to play well and have a little bit of momentum. And, you know, when they look back at the film, say, okay, we might be able to take advantage of this kind of scenario. At the end of the day, they want to be healthy and they want to be extra motivated uh, going into the game on November the 4th. Yeah. Cause the other part of this then becomes, forget the, how much are you going to hit each other? If you're the Ticats, how much do you play Bo Levi Mitchell in this game? Because you want to give him reps so that he can be at his peak performance. He hasn't, he's been out most of the year. You want to give him as much playing time as you can, but my goodness, you don't want to give him just enough playing time that there is one too many plays and he gets injured again. That would be a worst case scenario. I think the thought process for the Ticats coaching staff, they have not come out and said this out loud, but you know, if I'm head coach Orlando Steinauer, I give Bo Levi maybe a couple of series tops. If I if he goes well in the first series, they go down the field, they score a touchdown, that would be it for me. I mean, we don't need to see anything else. I don't think there's any rust that Bo Levi Mitchell has to shed. He has started two games in a row. You know, he hasn't played um, the entirety of each of those games. I think we saw enough to, you know, convince ourselves that, okay, he's okay. Uh, yeah. Worst case scenario is you leave him in too long and he gets hurt. And then what? Uh, I think this team needs Mitchell on the field in that East semifinal to come away with a victory in that game. Yeah. I mean, it, it really becomes a, uh, a situation though, because you, it's really, you can't play football trying not to get hurt. That's almost the fastest way to get hurt is if you're doing everything you can to avoid it. I don't know why it's a weird thing like that Murphy's law, but if you, if you try not to get hurt guaranteed, almost you're going to have guys that get hurt. But I just, I'm, I'm sure that everybody on both teams, especially the coaches are just going to be like throwing chicken bones or whatever they have to do. And it's like, please don't let any of my key guys get hurt in this one. Cause it means nothing. Yeah. I think if the players were being honest and they would never admit to this, that they would rather not play this game at all. Right. I, I know they love to compete. I know they pay, they get paid to play obviously, but at the end of the day, the more important game is, you know, a week from now, week from tomorrow in which one of the teams is going to be going home for the rest of the off season and won't get to play in Hamilton on November 19th in the gray cup. So I think both teams have the same kind of mentality. We're not going to show each other a lot either offensively or what we're going to try and do defensively or even special teams for that standpoint. And they're hoping like heck, fingers crossed, toes crossed that no one gets injured. 
Well, that's the other thing you just alluded to. The, they won't show each other. The, this could be one of those games where the offense runs five plays on a rotation just, <laughs> just to make sure that we're just not going to let them practice against anything we might throw them, that it's a wrinkle later in the game. I mean, I, th- this may be, it, this would be the greatest test for a marketing person ever to sell this game as something that people want to buy a ticket for. Cause there is just, it's a tough one, Rick. It's a tough one. Absolutely. I mean, it's a glorified preseason game because as we know, like nothing is going to happen. No, no. And this is the same with the West as well. I mean, in fact, every game this week has zero implications. The playoff picture was decided last week. And so for teams, especially who are hosting a game in what is a gate driven league, I kind of feel sorry for Montreal and Ottawa. And I think Calgary's hosting Winnipeg this week because the fans are going to be like, meh, I'll just go to the, the East or West semifinal. That's, that's the game I want to be at. All right. Last thing, because we only have a few seconds here. The one thing that's been really interesting to me over the last little while, now Hamilton is not going to run into the Argos, well, for at least a few weeks, if they do. I, I've been wondering that, you know, the Argos ratcheted it down a little bit when they got that big lead and started giving guys games off and giving guys rest. I, I am starting to wonder how easy it is to get just right back up to full speed again. I'm, I'm not sure it's going to be as easy as they might think. Well, I don't know because even when there have been resting guys, they've still been winning ball games. I mean, they're, they have a chance, uh, to set an all time wins record, uh, for their franchise when they take on Ottawa tomorrow night. And by all intents and purposes, Ottawa is apparently starting all their starters and Toronto is not starting many of their starters. So, you know, we could throw that philosophy out the window, but listen, they're, they're not going to play any of their big guys tomorrow. And come November 11th, a couple of weeks from now, there could be a rust factor. So, you know, any Hamilton fans listening out there win in Montreal next week, you got a shot against Toronto in that one game scenario for sure. That is Rick Zamperin. You can hear him every morning. Well, not tomorrow morning, but every other morning, every weekday morning at 5.30 until 9 here on 900 CHML with Good Morning Hamilton. And you can tune in tomorrow after the game. He will be here with the fifth quarter. And whether the game means anything or not, you know what? The fifth quarter is always, always a fun discussion, win, lose, or... Well, there haven't been a tie in a long time. So win, lose, or whatever. But um, there you go. <laughs> Rick, appreciate you doing this today. Thank you. You got it. Thanks, Scott. There is some... Well, it sure sounds like some excellent news for the city of Hamilton that for the second time ever, Hamilton has surpassed $2 billion in construction values. Stuff is being built in this city. And that's good for all kinds of reasons, housing reasons, and we want business coming here and we want workers and, well, you can add whatever else you like. Uh, Joining us to talk about this, Alan Shaw, who is the director of building and the chief building official with the city of Hamilton, and Norm Schlehan, who is the director of economic development with the city. Uh, Gentlemen, thanks for this. Good afternoon, Scott. Good afternoon, Scott. So Alan, let's start with you, Alan. I I just want to understand about the $2 billion because it is an enormous number, but we also know that the cost of everything over the last year or so has gone through the roof. So are we actually seeing more building or have we, when we look at these numbers, has it gone up a considerable amount because of inflation? Well, inflation, Scott, plays a role. Uh, however, if you look at the years, um, five years previous to 2021, our average construction value is about $1.3 billion per year. In the last three years, we've seen that balloon up to over $2 billion a year on average. So I, I think the uh, inflation is a factor, but I don't think it's the only reason. Norm, why is this happening? Why do you believe that Hamilton is booming like this? 
You know, you know, Scott, a number of reasons, but uh, what I'm really encouraged about uh, when you take a look and do a deep dive on these numbers is that, um, and we're always talking about the residential, you know, commercial industrial split is that 30% of the numbers that we're seeing here are actually industrial and commercial uh, numbers uh, in terms of percentage wise. So uh, record year for is already a record year for the industrial numbers over 524 million, the biggest year the city's ever had in its history. Uh, and we're, we're pushing on the one of the largest years uh, on the industrial commercial. And why is it happening? I mean, uh, people realize that Hamilton is a, is a great place to set up their set up their business. And you've been seeing that over the last uh, three to four years in particular. You just mentioned, Norm, that it's industrial commercial and that that's a good thing. Why is that a good thing? Well, <clears throat> plain and simple, industrial and commercial taxpayers pay a lot more than a residential taxpayer does. Um, <laughs> well, that's a good thing. Perspective, uh, which, which is always great. Uh, um, the... Um, Obviously, the, uh, the the employees that that are that are coming in here are great for the city in terms of uh, you know we're seeing some great diversity across the board. Scott, from if you take a look at the numbers, we're seeing it in agriculture and food with Artec and Summit Station goods movement with UPS uh, manufacturing. Um, you know, we had a recent announcement in Waterdown just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Janko Steel, Life Science, Life Science, four major announcements: Omnibio, Striker, Adam V, and Fusion Pharmaceuticals all invested this year. So it's uh, it's quite exciting to see this type of growth happening. Alan, where, where are we seeing the majority? Is there one area of town where this is really being centralized or is it all over the place? No, it's, it's interesting because if you take the top 10 projects in our, in our list uh, this year, they're actually occurring in six different wards. So they're actually spread along the, uh, throughout the city fairly evenly. And, and okay, so of those wards, that the way that breaks down could still be suburban versus urban, or mountain versus lower city. Is there a is there a spot that is a, a, a general area that is seeing a lot of this growth? Well, in regards to residential construction, obviously the uh, the, the downtown core is where we're seeing a lot of the proposed multi residential coming in. So those are some bigger numbers in that area. That's a generalization that could be made uh, based on the numbers we're seeing. And for the commercial industrial, is there, do we still have plenty of room for that? I don't know if that's a silly question, but is there still tons of room if people are interested in coming here that we can provide them or show them a spot and say, look, there's room for your warehouse and all that? So, so Scott, uh, if you take a look at uh, what we have in the pipe, actually, for, for coming up for next year, there's about 2.5 million square feet of speculative construction that's going on. So these are actually buildings that are going up that actually that don't have a tenant for them. So that's the speaks to the market demand that's going on out there. Uh, and yes, I would say, uh, you know, in the Red Hill, uh, Red Hill Business Park has been very busy, a, a large uptick there. Uh, but we're seeing some lands in around the airport coming online. And the big one for us, of course, is going to be the slate lands as they develop, or, or as we call them now, uh, Steelport, uh, the former Stucco lands down on the water. Right. We had uh, one of the... Um... One of the people who's behind that project on the, on the radio here just the other day talking about that one. And I mean, that, when that gets going, that sounds like whatever your numbers are going to be for that particular year, that's going to be a huge boost right off the bat. Yeah. And that's going to be a phase development, right? That's going to go over four, a few phases and it's going to, it's not going to happen overnight. That's for sure. Uh, but you know, the projected square footage that they're talking about down there over, over the time period of development is about 10 to 12 million square feet. And all of that will be industrial commercial. There will be no residential down on that site. Alan, do we have any way of monitoring whether, because if you're doing all, if all this building is happening, you need people to do the work and to do the building. Is there any way to track whether it's Hamilton or area people who are getting these jobs? Is this all stuff that is helping people put food on their table here in Hamilton? Well, I think the, the uh, construction industry is a general economic driver for any city. 
uh, and it does have some some benefit to the local residents and and contractors and and industry people in the city. We don't actually track that number, uh, so I couldn't speak to it specifically. But I think just by uh, sure location, it's it's going to have a positive effect. Nor we only have a few seconds left here, but um, how competitive is this? Are, is this the kind of thing that? And look, I'm not trying to take anything away from the work you're doing or anything like that, but is this the kind of thing where people are just walking up to Hamilton and saying, I want to build here, so just point me in the right direction? Or is this something that you and other people in the city are having to compete with other markets to get these things to come here? So there definitely is a competitive thing. I wish it was as simple as a <laughs> come on in and, and just go over there. Um, w- there's been a lot of work done with uh, a lot of uh, the local developers, the industrial developers, in terms of getting their lands in shovel-ready states. So a lot of that stuff is happening in the background that you don't necessarily see in that, you know, bringing on about 50 or 100 acres of industri- shovel-ready land. Uh, that does, to your point, though, open up the door for people coming in for those opportunities. So so I think there's, you know, we, we're, we're competitive in that, you know, we need to make sure we have these shovel-ready shovel lands available. To your earlier point, so we can keep these businesses coming here. But you, you are restricted. You, you, you don't have all the tools, not because of you particularly, Canadians, Ontario, we don't have all the things that some say American jurisdictions can do to lure people. So what are the things that you can put in front of someone and say, here's why you come to Hamilton? You know, and the number one issue, and, and it's uh, in the conversations that we're having with any employer or company that wants to come here, it comes back down to labor force uh, and, and workforce availability. And I mean, it's a tight, uh, it's a tight market all the way around. Uh, you know, every city has the same issues with workforce right now. But what makes Hamilton unique from its locational perspective is that we can draw from everyone around us, Scott. And as you're well aware, you know, about two and a half million people within an hour's drive that can get get actually about four and a half million if you how far you want to go. And you're, you're commuting in the right direction. So um, that's usually our biggest competitive advantage is talking about the workforce and the conversations about other cost factors are uh, actually have become secondary in those conversations, whereas about, you know, you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago, it was like, how much does it cost? Now it's like, do you have the labor force to supply me? Because mm. you, you need the, you need the, you need the people. You need the people for sure. Uh, that is Norm yeah. Schlehan. He is the director of economic development with the city and uh, also with us today, Alan Shaw, director of building, a chief building official with the city of Hamilton. Gentlemen, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Anytime, Scott. The city has decided that it is going to end free HSR bus rides for disabled residents, replacing it with one that gives a 30% discount that will presumably, hopefully give more low income people less costs when riding the bus, but still the idea that now people who have disabilities will not be able to ride for free. I don't think that there is a counselor around the table that doesn't look at a decision like this and say, well, we better brace for some kind of blowback because you know, it's coming. My next guest is one of those. He is the counselor for Ward 8. His name is John Paul Danko joins me now. Counselor, thanks for this today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you knew. I mean, th- this is one of those ones, as I say, you know there's going to be blowback when a decision like this comes, right? We do. And I think our goal as a council, our goal as a city, is to make our public transit system the first choice for residents and to do everything that we can to increase ridership and to really make transit as accessible as possible for me- for everyone and from time to time, that means reevaluating some existing programs that may have not been meeting the needs that they are intended or may not have been being used at the, in ways that they're intended, and to replace those with, uh, with new, new fare structures, new programs 
that may have a broader reach to you know reach that goal of making transit the first choice for residents. So how how was this decided then? Why why not, for example, if disabled riders have been able to use it for free, why not continue that? Why not add something else? Or or is it simply that you know what the cost for transit right now to the city is so high we just can't do everything? I think that's an excellent question. So the existing program that you're referring to is called the Temporary Transit Fair Special Program. And it was never intended to be free transit for persons with disabilities. What it was was that people that had a mobility device, a walker, a wheelchair, or a scooter, or um, a, a resident that had a Canadian National Institute for the Blind cardholder were able to board the bus and have the option to voluntarily pay or not. So there was no um, investigation of what their disability was, if they're eligible. It was supposed to be a, a voluntary pay-if-you-can program. Um, so it wasn't means-tested and, and it wasn't verified. So what we're trying to do is take that program and expand it to a, a low-income fare threshold that we think can benefit far more residents throughout the city. So we're, we're estimating that the new transit fare assistance program uh, which will offer residents and their families a 30% discount on fees, will reach approximately 90,000 residents uh, across Hamilton. And, and that's means tested. So it'll be low income residents who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford uh, getting on the bus, especially when you're taking the whole family. And how do you then establish if you are low income? Is this done at the start of the year you register or do you have to do something when you get to the bus? How's it? How do you work out who gets to use it? Yeah, so... Hamiltonians that are at the low income threshold uh, would apply in advance. So they, they would qualify for this program and it would be on their Presto record. So when they purchase their fare through Presto, it would automatically be, a, be a, a applied. So right now for a single person, like a single uh, family, if you have a, a one income earner, the threshold is $27,352. It's a little bit higher if there's a dual income earner in a family, but that's that's based on Statistics Canada's uh, definition of low-income households for the city of Hamilton. The, the, I was wondering, uh, I don't know if anyone else has been wondering this, but I certainly was, when this is cut, if part of the thought process behind this is we know that there is an HSR strike potentially looming. There's certainly at least a settlement that's going to have to be found at some point. It's going to cost the city more to pay its HSR drivers. That's the nature of a, of a raise that comes with this. Is, is part of this looking at what the overall cost is and anticipating higher costs to the city? So we need to find some things that are going to save us some money at some point. I don't think it's so much about cost as it is trying to initiate programs that can benefit the largest amount of people in with the most benefit of possible. So as I said before, um, you know, we're anticipating the new program will benefit uh, over 90,000 people across the city. So it's, it's a fairly extensive um, amount of people that we expect to benefit. And, and especially it's much more family oriented so if you can imagine if you have a family of, of five and you're, you're taking the bus two ways, that can get pretty expensive. And this program would apply to the entire household. So you get a 30% discount on those trips where otherwise it might not be, uh, you know, in, in the realm of affordability for a family. And we did do a pretty extensive consultation on this before it was launched. 
Um, staff did engage with the uh, with our various advisory committees, especially the, the advisory committees for persons with disabilities, with the CNIB, um, as well as the broader public. And we did have a fairly substantial um, positive response rate. I believe it was around 80, 80 over 80 percent of respondents um, thought that this would help them save money on transit and it would enable their family to take transit more often. Just before we go, there has been for a while now, and certainly coming into this term of council, there have been a number of councillors who have talked about free transit overall. Is this going to be a temporary measure then, because we're going to have discussions around council, the council table one of these days about absolutely free transit, which would make all of what we've just talked about moot? Well, this current program that we're talking about is, is a pilot, so it, it will be evaluated in 2025, and then a final decision will be made in 2026. Um, I think that's a separate discussion between uh, free transit in general. Free transit in general it has very significant cost impacts for uh, the city of Hamilton and taxpayers. We do receive a significant amount of revenue from the fare box, and eliminating that altogether, uh, would would we would have to find that uh, revenue from other sources, which would be the the levy of uh, taxpayers. So that's that's I think an entirely different. Uh, question, but something that uh, is has come up and I'm sure will come up uh, in the future. Councillor John Paul Danko, appreciate the time. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It's a very confusing announcement that we got from the federal government yesterday, and I'll tell you why. Because I thought that the federal government had been telling us all along that the carbon taxes were not going to be costing us anything. And so if they're not costing us anything, why is it saving us money to not bring them in? And then I see, well, where it's not coming in for, and I'm not sure who heats their home with oil at this point, because I don't think most people do. Anyway, let's bring in Franco Terrazano. He is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Joins us now. Franco, how are you today? Hey, you know what? I'm doing okay. I'm pretty upset with this announcement, okay? Let me tell you what's going on. Trudeau holds this press conference. He says it's about affordability. And then what does he announce? He announces that he's essentially going to remove the carbon tax from home heating oil for about three years. Okay, so let's break that down. Number one, Trudeau finally admits when everyone outside of, already, of, out of, outside of Ottawa already knew. Carbon taxes make life more expensive. There's no going back from that. That is a concession. Trudeau has now admitted that carbon taxes make life more expensive. Okay. But number two, well, it's nice for people who use home heating oil to keep warm during the winter months, but the vast, vast, vast majority of Canadians, including the absolute vast majority of people living in Ontario, do not use home heating oil. So if you heat your home with natural gas or essentially any other form of fuel, you're not getting any carbon tax relief. So Trudeau knows that his carbon tax is making your life more expensive, but he's doing nothing about it for the vast majority of Canadians. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a confusing announcement for those, for those reasons. And I mean, we've talked on this show, not necessarily with you, with a lot of other people about, you know, things that are more expensive now. And one of them, uh, we have Sylvain Charlebois on the station regularly talking about yes. food prices and things. And what seems to be, I think, getting missed is there's a reason, or at least part of the reason food prices are going up is because 
you and I may get a break on carbon taxes in some cases or get a refund check or something like that, but it costs money to make the food and paying the fuel and the travel and the transit and all this is that all adds up in carbon taxes. So to truly, if, if the, if the prime minister of the government, to me, if it was truly going to try and give us a break, put the break on the people who are manufacturing the goods where we're really getting nailed with the carbon tax. I'm glad you brought that up because there is, this is almost like minuscule to non-existent relief for the vast majority of Canadians, right? So first of all, what, 97% of Canadians aren't going to get any relief out of this, right? And about 97%, okay? But number two, you're still paying the carbon tax when you go to the pumps and fuel up your sedan with gasoline, and you're still paying the carbon tax through higher food prices because the carbon tax is costing Canadian farmers a billion dollars by 2030, okay? So when we make it more expensive for farmers to grow the food, you make it more expensive for families to buy the food. But, one, but hold on, there's more folks. The carbon tax is also making it more expensive for that trucker to deliver the food to the store because every time they go to fill up their big rig with diesel, they're still paying the carbon tax there. So the carbon tax is still going to directly increase your natural gas bill this winter in Ontario for the most part. The carbon tax is still going to make it more expensive for you to bring your kids to hockey practice. The carbon tax is still going to make it more expensive for farmers to produce food. The carbon tax is still going to make it more expensive for truckers to deliver the food. And the carbon tax is still going to make it more expensive for you to buy the food. Yeah, well, I, I do think that as a political calculation, it's a really interesting thing because clearly there is a, you know, with everything in politics, you're trying to score political points. There's, there's no question about that. And, but the interesting part here is that if the prime minister is reducing the carbon tax in the Atlantic provinces, which just by coincidence happened to be an area where his polling numbers are going through the floor all of a sudden, Lovely. a, a, a yeah. traditionally very staunch liberal stronghold that now looks like it's slipping away. If you can use carbon taxes as a political wedge, as a political lever, what you have argued is that it's a political thing. It's not necessarily an environmental thing. It's always been a political thing. Absolutely. This is not about the planet. This is about politics for Mr. Trudeau and he just proved it. Okay. And I'll go one step further. This wasn't about scoring political points. Let's just call it what it is. This was about saving political faith, staying alive. Right? Because here's what's happening. You had one liberal member of parliament in Atlantic Canada, Mr. Ken McDonald, who represents an area in Newfoundland and Labrador. He stood with conviction and he stood against the carbon tax. He voted against Mr. Trudeau and the rest of his liberal um, colleagues, and he voted in favor of repealing the carbon tax because he understands that his constituents are getting absolutely hammered, like all Canadians are from the carbon tax. So one liberal MP broke ranks. And he stood strong with his convictions and for his constituents. And as a matter of result, his constituents are getting some relief. So what about the rest of the Liberal MPs, right? What about the Liberal MPs in Ontario? Where's their spine? When well, are they going to stand up for their constituents? Okay, so Franco, just... Franco, I think I know the answer. And I think you know the answer. And I think everyone knows the answer to this. As we get closer to an election, if the polls are still where they are, he now still has this quiver or this arrow in his quiver to pull out and say, well, we're going to cut you a break because we've done it for the Atlantic provinces. I a hundred percent expect or believe that we might see this all the rest of the place, but piecemeal just to try and score those points. It's clearly a political calculus. That's what it is. And everyone else is paying the price. 
right? And, and you know, I think it's I think it's it can and it should be done faster. And I think you're going to have liberal MPs, hopefully, in Ontario, southwestern Ontario, throughout the rest of the country, who see what their colleague just did for their constituents. And I hope they can learn from that. And I hope everyone else in Ontario and the rest of Canada pressures their liberal members of parliament to do the right thing like Ken McDonald did. Now, one more thing to add here, because he's getting pressure from all sides of the political aisle, right? The federal NDP after yesterday's announcement, they said this wasn't enough. They said rightly that this is not fair for the rest of Canadians who need carbon tax relief as well. Then you have premiers like Mr. Doug Ford in Ontario, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, Daniel Smith in Alberta. You also have the NDP opposition in Alberta who's against this unfair carbon tax regime across Canada. So across all of the political aisle, everyone is upset that the, Mr. Trudeau will not provide all Canadians with the, with the carbon tax relief that we need. Mm. Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Thanks, Franco. Always appreciate it. Hey, have a great weekend. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. This is always a, a, a difficult, a challenging topic. Lots of different points of view on this one. But I got to tell you, um, I think even people who are totally on board with the concept of medical assistance in dying in all of its various forms would be shocked by some of the numbers that we are seeing, that we are averaging a 30% increase every year in the number of people who are taking advantage of this. And it's probably not surprising because we keep expanding what is eligible for this. But I, you may feel very differently, but I just cannot believe that we anticipated this, that anyone anticipated this when we started this, that Canada has now become, I think, the world's number one user of physician-assisted suicide. Dr. Sanu Gind is a professor at the University of Toronto. He's a mental health advocate. Joins us now. Doctor, thanks for the time today. Hi, Scott. Um, pleasure to be with you. And thank you for continuing to cover this really tough topic. Well, I just, as I say, I, I, I did not, I wasn't aware of these numbers and I saw them uh, yesterday, the numbers that came out that we are, we're essentially growing by a third every year in the number of people who are using this. And you know, I've said this so many times, we can have a legitimate and reasonable debate about someone who is on death's door from some terminal illness. And that's where I think most Canadians pictured this when it started, because that's what the assurance was that this was going to be for, but it has just expanded so rapidly. I think people would be shocked, I think, when they hear the level of growth that we've seen in this country. You know, Scott, I've been involved in this area for years since we began on this path, and I am shocked. No other country that I'm aware of has had what I would call the explosive growth of assisted suicide that Canada has had in less than a decade. So you're right, in six to seven short years, we have skyrocketed in our use. And I say this as someone who, if you recall, is not a conscientious objector. I actually chaired the May team at my former hospital, but with this expansion that's going on, I could no longer be involved. And I would assume that when and if, and assuming it happens, the expansion continues to allow people with mental illnesses to take advantage of it, would it be, a, my guess would be that would expand it even more. Like we might see an explosion in this because mental health would be such an area where people might be susceptible to using this. 
part of the problem is we really don't know. You know, we've been given reassurances by the people pushing for expansion that the numbers will be very small for mental illness. They're not basing that on any facts or evidence, and they have not put in any safeguards to ensure that that's the case. So, you know, getting back to the numbers, this report just came out this week. Even that is somewhat troubling in and of itself because previous reports came out in the summer, in, you know, June or July. We don't know why this one was delayed by as long as it was, but it's ironic that this report comes out this week, which is just days after Parliament voted on a bill about whether to go ahead with expanding even further in March 2024 to made for sole mental illness. So even that timing is concerning. You would think parliamentarians would benefit from more knowledge rather than less. But in terms of what these numbers show, you're right, it's skyrocketed to now the point of um, another 30% increase year on year. So now over 4% of all Canadian deaths are by made. This is after it came in in 2016 only. In some provinces, BC and Quebec, it's much higher at five and a half and six and a half percent. It makes those provinces the number one jurisdictions on the planet for the percentage deaths by made in their population. And Canada was already the number one jurisdiction on the planet in total numbers of made last year. We had over 10,000 people receive assisted suicide last year, sorry, in 2021. And what these stats show us is that in 2022, that number has gone up to over 13,000 um, who've gotten that. And this is largely under the original framework that we had, because most of these deaths are still in that category of what's called when death is reasonably foreseeable, meaning when someone's on the process of dying. We have no clue what's going to happen as we're expanding it further, and yet we're still pushing ahead with that expansion. I don't want to be overly cynical about this and I, I truly don't know the answer to this. So, so I don't want anyone thinking that I'm asking you something, setting it up because I really don't know. Is this a lucrative thing? And, and like it, it, everyone, every time you talk about a story, often people say, follow the money. Is there, is there a path of, is there a benefit, a cost benefit to hospitals, to the medical industry, to expanding made financially? So look, I don't want to get, you know, overly cynical, um, but you're asking what the actual facts are. We've known from the beginning that it's far less costly to provide MAID than it is to provide medical care. And that gets magnified even more when you start to provide assisted suicide to people with disabilities who could have decades left to live. So it's obviously far less costly to provide MAID than to provide decades of medical care and dignified living in the community for those with disabilities. This is part of the serious concern that I and many of us have is, you know, what are some of the levers that are going to be driving people as we expand further to get made? Because what you then find is it's not just the lever of suffering from an illness, it's the pressure of suffering from a life of social deprivation and poverty. We're already starting to see that. Evidence suggests we'll see it even more if and when it expands to soul mental illness. And the 2022 numbers do not yet include tracking that allows us to pull any of those disparities and marginalization out properly. 
And despite, the, which was supposed to be there from 2021, the changes that were made in 2021 also were supposed to be accompanied by better data tracking. This report says we're not doing that yet. That data won't be in until next year's report. But even with the limited reporting we have, there are very troubling signs in here. Already, one third of people are saying that part of the suffering that's fueling the request is feeling a sense of burden to society and to their family. About one in five cite loneliness as a reason. And if you drill down even further, there are also some really scary gender disparities. The gender gap starts to emerge. So last year, the number of people who got made for this catch-all phrase called other, meaning not cancer, not cardiovascular, not neurological, not respiratory illness, but kind of a vague other. The number of women getting made for that are far higher than the number of men mm. getting made for that. It's about 30% higher. Depending on which category you look at, it goes up to 50 or 60% higher in terms of women getting made for these non-specific other reasons, which include things like frailty. And the reason that's really concerning is that we see a similar gender gap in the few European countries that have allowed made for sole mental illness, where twice as many women as men get made for sole mental illness reasons, unlike the relative gender equity that exists when people get it for end of life conditions. It's, uh, yeah, we got to run. And it's, my, yeah. yeah. You know, anyway, it, so there are concerning numbers there. It, and, and, you know, and we've had uh, examples, many examples now in this country already of stories of people who we've heard of who have been encouraged to consider this, who weren't even considering it, which is a whole other area that we'll uh, hopefully talk about some other time. Uh, Dr. Sanu Gain, professor at the University of Toronto and a mental health advocate. Thank you for doing this as always. Thank you, Scott. Take care. More and more Canadians are finding they cannot continue, can't meet their car loan payment obligations. I thought this was just going to be a housing thing, but now it's, it's spreading to a lot of other areas. Don Fox is executive vice uh, financial consultant, executive financial consultant with the Fox group, IG wealth, private wealth management team. It must be Friday, Don. I cannot read and come up with your title. Don is a really great financial guy. How about that as the introduction? We'll leave it there. Don Fox. That's a good one, Scott. Uh, As I say, I have expected, we've been hearing for months and months now about all the challenges that people have had with housing and paying their mortgages and the, the anticipation in a bad way of what's coming up when they have to renegotiate. Hadn't been hearing all that much about their inability to pay their car loans. Is this new or is this just sort of been simmering under the surface because it's not as big a deal? Oh no, it's uh, it's been simmering. It hasn't hit it hasn't hit the headlines as you mentioned. Is and, and debt is a kind of a trickle down. You know, you have to hit your mortgage payment, or you know, the bank will foreclose on it. So then you have to say, okay, what is the next thing? And car loans would be probably you know something has to give. If there's only so many dollars coming in the household, and you got to you know you need shelter, you need food, and uh, you know other things is prioritizing. And unfortunately, cars you know which wouldn't have been a big deal when they first got the car loan. But when the you know when the interest rates tripled over the course of a little over a year, all of a sudden it's everything. It's it's death by a thousand paper cuts, and and this is where you know raise it by a quarter percent, raise it by another quarter percent, raise it by a percent, and next thing you know you go from two percent um, mortgage rates up to say seven uh, five and a half six percent mortgage rates, and and if you have a, a line of credit, 
they're sitting around seven and a half percent right now. And so now more and more of your dollars are going towards debt and then something has to give. And unfortunately, you're absolutely right. Car loans are part of it. In fact, Bank of Montreal recently announced about a month ago that they got out of that side of the business um, because, again, there was a lot of defaults happening. There might be people, and, and I'm not going to say that I would not at one time have said this myself. I think my opinion has changed, but you might have said at one time, look, if you take out too much debt or take on too much debt, you're asking for problems if anything goes wrong, like increases in interest rates. And so, you know, don't buy the biggest house you possibly could afford so that every dime is locked up. Cause then if there's any increase, you're stuck and same with cars. And maybe that would have been callous for me to say that once upon a time, but boy, the way interest rates have gone up, I'm not sure that it's just those people who did that, who are falling into these problems right now. It's probably much broader than that. It's so much broader than that. And the banks, the car salespeople, the real estate agents, um, every, everybody was talking about payments. They weren't talking about the amount of debt. And I know I, I always spoke of it as well. I would rather have a small debt with a higher interest rate than a, in a, than a large debt with a lower interest rate. Because at the end of the day, you still owe this much money. And this is where it, everybody was talking about payments. In fact, a lot of people don't even know the amount of debt they took on. They just know it cost me, say, 1500 a month or whatever the number is. Right. So it's getting a grip on your balance sheet. How much, what are your assets? What is your debt? Not just the payments, because those payments can vary. And this is unfortunately, um, you know, it's come to roost at this stage with the interest rates going up so dramatically. And it doesn't happen, like I said, overnight. It just it, it was a trickle of, of many, many interest rate increases. And then finally, things start to give. And so what happens for the people? You, you've got a house and you've got a car. And probably, as you said, your first priority is let's keep the roof over my head. So then what happens with the car loan if you can't pay it? Well, they, <laughs> eventually, if they can't, they, the creditors will take the car away from you. Um, what we're actually finding, we've heard, is that people are starting to cash in. They actually start to use their credit cards first to start to make the car payments. And that's you know, not that's good. A, it's, it's a cycle, and then all of a sudden, their credit card bills are now up to twenty thousand, hoping that the interest rates would start to drop. Well, they didn't, and so now they're cashing in RSPs. And so now they're cashing in RSPs. If they are making a fairly good amount of money, they may not be getting enough. Um, withholding tax taken off the RSP. So then they'll have to pay the government an extra amount of money come April when they file their income tax. So again, it's a chain reaction of this. And, and you know, it's nice to see the premiers of different provinces starting to say, okay, enough is enough. We, why are we trying to get this uh, inflation rate down to 2%? It's at basically over three. And we are probably, it's not official in a recession, but there is more signs everywhere that we are already there. By the time we actually announce we're in a recession, we've been in it for six months anyway. And as Don Fox, I wish we had more time. It's, it's always fascinating to talk to you, Don. Now, Don Fox, now let me see if I can get this right this time and read it properly. Executive <laughs> financial consultant with the Fox Group IG private wealth management team. There. Whew. I know it's Friday, well but. Well done, Scott. You're well done. You know, you know the weekend's right here, so you're all good. I'm, I, boy, Don, I, I need that weekend apparently. Uh, listen, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for doing this. Anytime, Scott. Thanks for, thanks for letting me on the show. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It was, I think, as I recall anyway, rare, rare on Halloween night 
to walk down the street and have a house that didn't have its light on. There, there were a few, there were always a few, but by and large, it, it seems memory, if memory serves, it seems almost every home you could knock on the door and somebody would open it and they would give you candy. That is my recollection. Maybe you have the same and maybe we are imagining things. I don't know, but it seems like that was the case. Well, not anymore. Apparently, according to a new poll from Leger, almost half of Canadians say they're going to be opting out of Halloween this year. What? What is that about? That th- something seems deeply wrong with that. And I think we need to have a chat with a whole bunch of adults on this one. Steve Mossop Le- is uh Leger's vice president on the West coast joins us now. Steve, how are you today? Good. Thanks for having me on the show, Scott. Well, I got to tell you, um, uh, your numbers, I'm not taking any issue with your numbers, but my goodness, what is wrong with Canadians? What is wrong with answering your door and giving kids Halloween candy? It is, you know, it's less than half. So if you look in Ontario, it's a little bit over half, 53%. So a little bit better than the national average, but yes, it's, uh, a lot of folks have opted out. Now, the parents with kids, on the other hand, about 85% have opted to uh, trick-or-treat. So that's uh, you know, <laughs> sticking with the tradition. So maybe there's a, a positive lining there. Well, we know why that is, don't we? Because the kids get home and they go to bed and we get to then dig in and get the good chocolate bars out of there. Exactly, without them knowing which one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> See, Steve, you you and I are operating on the same wavelength here. We must have had the same uh, same experiences. But no, it 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 seems as though, and I don't know if you've done this poll in the past or if this is a first time, but it seems that something is very very different here, and I'm not sure what that would be. Why there's such a change? Because it was always such a tradition. It is. It has dropped. I mean, we we pulled this through COVID, and obviously that changed everything. But we still haven't rebounded to pre-COVID levels in terms of participation. So what's going on? I think it's a combination. Um, you know, there's still the religious right in Canada that, that, that many do not uh, opt to participate. There is uh, economic situations and just overall fatigue and, and consumer confidence. You know, we released a poll just the other day. You probably saw it where uh, consumer confidence is the lowest level we've seen in about 13 years. So it's... It, People are feeling the pinch, even if it's just the expenditures on Halloween. You mentioned the religious right. Uh, that's not who I would have expected would have been, uh, well, maybe part of it, but not who I would have expected. I mean, I, I wonder, and it's not a, an immigrant thing, but this is a, a tradition that is traditional in this country. And if you're new to this country, your country before may not have celebrated Halloween. It's just not something that you would have had in your experience. So I was wondering if we've got a lot of new Canadians, immigration, we've had, you know, a million people a year for the last year or so. Um, I was wondering if that's where this may have come from, just not being exposed to it before. It would be in the urban centers, especially Toronto, Vancouver, where where immigration is is concentrated. Uh, but there's lots of reasons, and and we haven't pulled on this for a while. But in the past, when we have, there's there's a list of you know 15 or 20 reasons why people would opt out. So it's not one singular cause, but it is it is interesting. Like you say, if you look back in in the past, it seemed like it was much wider participation. On the flip side, you've got uh, you've got Canadians, I guess, to a fairly solid degree, participating overall in any any aspect of Halloween. You know, it's 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 only twenty eight percent of adults, but it's still you know nearly a third of adults who are doing that, and there's about forty percent of households that are decorating. So it's not a tradition that's uh, completely gone away. Yeah, and we got to run, but th- that's one of the things you just touch on it because it seems as though, and again, anecdotally only. 
even if the numbers are down, it seems the people who are doing it have ratcheted it way up. Like we've gone from, we may not have as many people, but boy, the people decorating their house, I don't remember the decorations like we see now in the past. Oh, exactly. And expenditures as well. It's one of the single largest growing categories in the retail really? area. In, in an economic climate where everything is going down, the pull up release last week, we tracked about 15 different categories. And the expenditures are declining from everything from movies to households, uh, eating out to travel, you know, a number of categories. But Halloween is the one where it's not decreasing. In fact, there's just about as many people spending more this year as there are spending less. And the vast majority are saying the expenditure is, is staying the same. So it is propping up, at least to a small degree, the retail economy uh, this month. Mm. Steve Mossop, Le- uh, Leger's Vice President on the West Coast. Steve, really appreciate you taking time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, anytime. Uh, I'm a little surprised, but you know, times change, I suppose, but still 50%, 50%, you know, I'm not endorsing this, but in the old days, I won't even say what it was. You know what happened if you didn't have your light on in your house and people rang the doorbell and no one answered, you know what happened in the old days. I'm not saying it cause I don't want to encourage it, but there were, well, as kids, there were consequences. Sometimes it was as simple as toilet paper. Other times it was something else. Uh, we don't want to do that, but come on, turn your light on, give out some candy. It's okay. Be friendly, be a good neighbor, be a good neighbor. Some digging by Clark Rasmussen of DetroitHockey.net has dug up a list of trademarked names that appear to be anyway, and it's now being widely reported that appear to be the favored six names or the planned six names for the new professional women's hockey league. We haven't, they haven't been released yet. But as I say, he did a little digging and good for him. And he seems to have found that the teams in the original six teams in the Professional Women's Hockey League are going to be, are you ready for this? The Baston Wicked, the Minnesota Superior, the Montreal Echo, 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 uh, sorry, the New York Sound, Ottawa Alert, and the Toronto Torch. And that last one is particularly relevant because pretty much everybody who's heard these names since has torched the league saying, what in the world are Toronto torch, the Montreal echo? What does that even mean? Let's bring in Moshe Lander. He is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Maybe he can walk us through what some of these things mean. Moshe, how are you today? You're asking an awful lot of me to be able to walk you through that. <laughs> okay. So Boston Wicked, I get, cause you know, that's sort of the joke about, yeah, Boston Wicked, you know, I mean, okay. It's a little, uh, whatever. I mean, sure. Okay. Fine. Uh, and Minnesota Superior, um, yeah, kind of, except that Lake Superior is more bounded by Michigan and Wisconsin. So it's a bit of a stretch, but nonetheless, um, you're, you're in Concordia, you're closer than I am. What does Montreal echo mean? I have no idea. I would have thought that if anything, Montreal would take the torch because of the connection to the Montreal Canadians and the, uh, line from, uh, Flanders field about the, the torch to fallen hands. That's but, right. From, uh, yeah, from failing hands, we pass the torch, be yours to hold. Yeah. And, and in every great Montreal Canadians tradition, they always have the torch on the ice for sure that you're right. That would have made more sense. Exactly. I, I I don't know what's going on here. And if you notice, I think all of them uh, lack an S. Uh, so even though that's yes. kind of one of those trendy things where you have like the thunder and the lightning. And um, I, I think it's maybe indicative that they've just run out of names. There's too many professional sports franchises. So they're just looking for adjectives uh, or nouns to just try and uh, figure something that either creates alliteration 
uh, or that maybe has some loose connection to the, the team. Yeah. Well, see, here's the funny part too, is that there was someone who was asked, so there used to be a hockey team like way back in the day, like a million years ago called the Ottawa Alerts, plural alerts. Uh, here it's the Ottawa Alert, but someone has said, well, no, that's got nothing to do with this. Well, if it doesn't, it's a really wild coincidence, but nonetheless, uh, I just, I, I look at these and I think, okay, maybe I'm just old and cynical now, but I'm not feeling a great deal of my soul being moved by, by these names, quite honestly. And apparently no one else is either. You're right. You know, one thing that's maybe somewhat hopeful and promising is that if you look at the surviving six NHL franchises and some of the older franchises in, in the other professional sports, the names do change from their origins, right? So, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs were not originally the Maple Leafs. Uh, and so it evolved at a later point and, and then it took on some feels. So, you know, maybe in the beginning, what they want to name the team uh, is what they think might be something that's catchy. But once the team builds an identity, once it builds itself into the community, then it takes on its own name. Uh, it, it's the only way to maybe explain then uh, what they're doing right now is just trying to start the ball rolling and see where it goes from there. Moshe, you do bring up a really interesting point though, in defense of the names here, I will, I will now stand as the devil's advocate and play the defender of the names. If we had never had a hockey team in the Toronto area and they came forward and said, we're naming our team, the Maple Leafs people would have thought they were on some sort of heroin or something, because that is just like a ludicrous name. Now it's got tradition. And so it's become familiar to us, but come on, it really is a stupid name by itself out of any context. Exactly. And if you think about a lot of those team names, right, the Red Wings, the Bruins, the, like they, they, they have really no connection other than uh, alliteration in the case of Boston. And really for Detroit, right, with the Red Wings, it's actually the logo that's iconic, right? Yes. It's, it's the winged tire uh, that, that ties to the city of Detroit, but the Red Wings ha has really nothing to do with it. So, you know, there, there really isn't anything in the name in the beginning. Uh, it, it's a matter of in any sports league, what you need is to make sure that you've got a good product and then they'll, they'll take on their own nicknames even within that. Right. Well, so, yeah. uh, you know, the, the Montreal Canadians are known as the Habs in Montreal. Right. And, and so even there it's, it's the, the Canadians almost becomes the irrelevant part. It's, it's to the locals that actually like that team, uh, that they're beloved Habs. A couple things. Uh, first of all, the Maple Leafs, just so for, so people don't think that I completely don't know the history. The Maple Leafs were a branch of the army that Con Smythe, who owned the team, served in. So there was a reason for the name. There's a historical context. I'm just saying today, if you said we're going to name the team after a piece of foliage, someone would laugh at you and think you were crazy. The name Habs, and then if you talk about, you know, the Buffalo Bills last night played the Buccaneers who were known as the Bucks, or, you know, go down the list. So many of those short forms though, that have become, as you say, Moshe, the, the catch name that fans cling to. So many of those names were invented by headline writers in newspapers because the full name wouldn't fit. We have less newspapers now. I wonder where the new nicknames and short forms and other things come from. Yeah, it, it's it's probably just going to be one of those things that over time, I, I mean, think about the way that we create nicknames for people, right? So if you have within your social group, uh, people that you call by name, it probably starts as some variant of their actual name. And then the variant becomes a variant yes. and it becomes something connected <laughs> to that. And the next thing you know, the name has absolutely nothing to do. So when an outsider comes into your social group, they say, why do you call that person by that name? 
And you have to explain to them the 20 iterations to get to that point, right? But at some point, everybody just learns that that's the way that we refer to that person in the social group. So, you know, I'm hopeful that that's the way that it starts here too, that you just need to pick a name. And hopefully what this person in Detroit found was just a name that was being blocked. There might be a bunch of names that are being blocked off here. Maybe it's subjected to like a naming competition or something to try and at least uh, endear it to the, the local community. Well, if it is a naming competition, I'm choosing all these to try and win the tickets because (laughs) whatever happens, this seems like a good bet. The other thing though, I wondered about, and I don't, as I'm saying this, I don't know that it makes any sense, honestly, but I was thinking, is there an effort being made somehow to not feminize the name, to make it a sports team name that doesn't, you know, in the, in the, in the league, the NWHL that was playing prior to this in the States, they had the Buffalo Buttes. And they had the New York Riveters and they were specific to women's names, women's feminine, more feminine names. This, it looks clearly like they've avoided that probably intentionally. Yeah, for sure. And if there's going to be any chance of success, you want to create some sort of idea that this is not just an extension of the men's brand. Uh, but even there, you can still associate yourself with the NHL franchise uh, without having to necessarily feminize it or try and diminish it. Uh, but again, it, it, it seems like uh, by by not at least connecting something, uh, you, you know, the wicked, uh, like why not at least go then with something like the Boston Chows? Like it, it, again, that, that lack of the S <laughs> makes it a bit difficult too, right? Because if you think about the, the sports where you do have that, the thunder, the lightning, the heat, that becomes hard to create into some sort of nickname because it's singular, um, it the avalanche, harder. right? So even there, when you try and shorten the avalanche, you turn them into the avs. Yes. Um, yes. So I, I think they're already setting themselves up from a, from a, a branding standpoint that it's going to be difficult to turn that into something. And often when you have one syllable names, it becomes difficult because how do you make it cute? You're now going to start adding them extra syllables, right? That's that's famously like Adam Oates was known as Oatsy. Why you couldn't shorten Oats any further? Like yeah, um, that's right. You, you know, this is one of those things. And then when you have the torch, I mean, Echo. What what are you gonna call it? The Ek? Like, um, <laughs> it, 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 I do it, like it, your suggestion it, it's though. Maybe not fully thought through. <laughs> I do like your suggestion though of the Boston Clam Chowder. That was see, Chowder yeah. would be even a better name for a, for a t- and, and you'd be hungry and you'd have to go to the concessions more often, which would even help their financial bottom line. Uh, Moshe Lander, a senior economics lecturer with Concordia University. I know team names is not what you're usually talking about on a Friday, but really appreciate jumping in and helping with this one. Pleasure, anytime. So we were just talking about team names with this professional women's hockey league. We think those are the team names, but I think we can say as much as a lot of people and go online, believe me, a lot of people pooping all over those names, just not, not up on those names, but I'm pretty sure those are not the worst team names out there, Tom. I'm going to bring Tom in here. There are some of the more unusual ones, team names in North American sports that are strange and awesome. And there are some that are just really strange and don't make a lot of sense. I'll give you one of the awesome ones. The Arkansas school for the deaf. Do you know what their team name is? Oh, you said, so you said for the deaf? Um, uh, no, but the The leopards, the leopards, they are the Arkansas school for the deaf leopards. Oh, 
which is just brilliant. I love that. That is brilliant. I absolutely love that they would do that and play with that and have fun with it. That's amazing. Um, here's one that's totally misunderstood all the time because I, when I first heard this, I thought this is the coolest name ever. The Nippon Ham Fighters, which is from Japanese baseball, a very famous Japanese team. However, I was gravely disappointed when I realized it was not a fighting ham. Oh no. Nippon ham, Nippon dash ham is an area of the city. It's just the fighters. I thought it was the ham fighters, which was going to be like way, way, way better. But anyway, uh, this one, probably the most famous one (laughs) and the funniest one by far and so clever. Um, well, we'll just give you this one. The Rhode Island school of design. They don't have officially sanctioned teams, but they have inter, they have teams that play other schools and their teams are all called the NADs. Go on. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So when they're cheering for their team, it's go NADs, go. (laughs) And their mascot, um, let me just tell you, uh, I don't, am I allowed to say this on the air? I don't know. Their mascot's name is Scrody. <laughs> and he looks exactly like you would expect him to look. So they're leaning mostly, into the joke. Yes. Got and it. he is, he's pretty much, the mascot is banned from pretty much every other team's venue. Just saying that. Just, for, for completely unknown reasons. I don't, I could not imagine why you would not want this guy. Yeah. Can we, uh, it's adults only night when they're coming to town. Uh, the blooming prairie awesome blossoms. Okay. The Awesome Blossoms. I like that. It's a high school in Minnesota. The Awesome Blossoms. That's, you know, I, I kind of like it, but. Go with that. Why I kind of like it, but who made the name? Was it the, well, was it their kindergarten class? Probably. Awesome. The, the, the other awesome. Ki- awesome Blossom. Uh, the high school in Georgia, the Cairo Syrup Makers. I don't get it. Uh, it's cane. Neither about, do I. They have, they, they had, they had cane syrup production once upon a time back there. So there's the, the Syrup Makers, but I, I do like that name. The Chattanooga Central Purple Pounders. <laughs> You've heard of the people, the purple people eater. Here's the, the central, the Chattanooga Central Purple Pounders. What are they on when they're coming up with these names? I don't know. The University of Arkansas at Monticello Bull Weevils. These, okay. Th- I'm sure these names are coming from like, they're very in, they personal to the town. It but must be. It must be, but it doesn't translate. Be. It does not translate. No. Here's one that just sounds sad. The Centralia Orphans. Oh. It's a high school in Illinois. The Centralia Orphans. They're not all orphans. It's not at a school. It's not an orphanage. It's just the name they came up with. This one, again, uh, makes no sense to me. The Hoopstown Area Corn Jerkers. Oh. A high school in Illinois. Again, huh. the, the Hoopstown Area Corn Jerkers. Did they say these names out loud before they officially their, decided? Yeah. Their motto is fear the ear, which I like. <laughs> fear the ear. That. Fear the ear. See, that's good. Yeah, it's, it rolls off the tongue at least. It kind of does. Uh, in Montgomery, this is an affiliate, I, Montgomery, Alabama, I guess. Yeah. Montgomery, Alabama. The, it's a minor league affiliate of the Tampa Bay Rays, the Montgomery Biscuits. <laughs> the, uh, do, do they give away biscuits at every I game? I don't know. I hope I they don't do. Know. If they're, if they're not doing that, they're missing out on a wild opportunity. A uh, high school in Utah, the Jordan Beat Diggers. Whoa. The Beat Diggers. Whoa. <laughs> in division three NCAA sports, there's the University of California, Santa Cruz, Banana Slugs. 
I've heard of them before. That's an awesome team name. The Banana Slugs. I just like that one. I uh, can't even read you the next one because we would get kicked off the air. Uh, let's see here. The, the St. Louis College of Pharmacy Eutectic. The Eutectic. Which the Eutectic. I, I had to look this up because I have no idea what this even means. Eutectic is defined at the, as the point where two solids combine to form a liquid. Oh. But that's so, a weird name for a team name. So they're combining sports with nerds. <laughs> exactly. That is, yes, we are, we are making wow. a nerd. And, and number one on the list of these stranger names, and someone may have a different one, but here, the Scottsdale Community College Fighting Artichokes. The Fighting Artichokes. Fighting Artichokes. Artichokes, they're delicious food. Dip them mm. in a little bit of butter after you boil, after you steam them. Oh, they're delicious. But the Fighting Artichokes, unfamiliar. That's, that's what you get when you fry the artichokes. Yes, unfamiliar with their work, but there you go. Some of the uh, strange names. So maybe the, the Women's Hockey League names aren't the, aren't the weirdest ones out there. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Uh, listen, we got to run. We have got a weekend to get to. So do you. We will talk to you on Monday. Have a wondrous, wondrous weekend. Thanks to Tom for all of his work on the board this week, to Will for lining everything up. Thanks to our amazing guests who join us and to you for listening. We will see you Monday at 3 o'clock. Have a great one. 